corruption, her caring and amiable rep reputation notwithstanding, there were also some rumors that she may have been involved in some unsavory deals. One notable example was the rumor that she had been involved in the Willowgate scandal, a huge 1980s corruption scandal in which senior government ministers and officials had corruptly acquired vehicles at low prices from a state vehicle assembler and sold them at extremely high prices at a time when the supply of new vehicles was scarce. The subsequent inquiry, the Sandura Commission, unearthed gross levels of corruption which claimed the political careers of a number of senior government ministers, among them Mugabe's peers, Maurice Nyakumbo and Inos Ngala. It was in this context that a rumor circulated that Salim Mugabe had also enjoyed profits from the scandal. However, the acclaimed journalist and editor of the Chronicle newspaper, which sensationally broke the story, Geoffrey Nyarota, wrote in his book, Against the Grain, Memos of a Zimbabwe Newsman, that while there had been a rumor regarding Salim's role, it had never been established as a fact. Open quote. One of the rumors that had been circulating was that the first lady, Salim Mugabe, was involved in Willowgate. Our own investigation had unearthed no evidence to substantiate this. Close quote, writes Nyarota. He revealed that he later learned that one of the persons under investigation started the rumor in a bid to incite Mugabe to silence the Chronicle newspaper. Nyarota says, open quote, the gossip was so strong that I was accused of covering up for Salim. Close quote. While acknowledging that she was not, open quote, not above controversy on occasion, close quote, Nyarota says those peddling the rumor failed to furnish any evidence. In Geoff Hill's book, The Battle for Zimbabwe, The Final Countdown, Nyarota is quoted saying, open quote, we published only the proven facts, and while there were rumors about Sally, there was no evidence, close quote. In an autobiographical account, Fei Chang offers an, an explanation as to why, if she did, Sally might have shipped a vehicle to Ghana. She connected to Sally's desire towards the end of her life when she felt betrayed by a husband who had taken on a mistress and suspected his close associates were plotting against him. Open quote. Sally was accused of sending a car from Zimbabwe to Ghana during the 1988 Willowgate car scandal when a number of top politicians were accused of using their positions to obtain cars, close quote, writes Chang. Open quote. This was perhaps more a symptom of what had happened to a marriage by that time. Sally was terminally ill and Mugabe had begun an affair with Grace Marufu, whom he was to marry in 1994, two years after Sally's death. Sally was considering moving back to Ghana, close quote. What is evident is that the accounts are not conclusive. Nyarota's account shows that no evidence was ever furnished to back the claim. It could mean she was not involved at all, but it could also mean the evidence of her involvement was suppressed. It could also mean that it was just a baseless rumor. For her part, Chang offers an explanation as to why she might have taken advantage of the car scheme, which suggests something happened, but there was a reason for it. There has been a controversy in recent months over the appointment of Simba Chikore, Mugabe's son-in-law as Chief Operating Officer of Air Zimbabwe. Simba Chikore is Bona Mugabe's husband. 
what most people don't realize is Patricia Bekele's husband was also posted to the same parastatal for many years when he was in the senior management. As already pointed out, Patricia Bekele came to Zimbabwe as Sally's niece, which makes Bekele an Ethiopian, also an indirect son-in-law to the Mugabe's. As Zimbabwe therefore appears to have gained a reputation as a playground for the Mugabe's son-in-law, there was also a rumor that a dialysis machine had been specially procured for Sally Mugabe for a kidney condition, and this was used by critics as an example of excesses and corruption. However, the website globalblackhistory.com refused this as an open court false accusation, close quote, reporting that the dialysis machine was a personal gift bought for Sally by Lord and Lady Soames in the 1980s, after they became aware of her condition. Lord Soames was the man given the task of managing the transition from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe between 1979 and 1980. As governor and the Queen's representative, he oversaw the first multiracial elections in 1980 and got to know Mugabe well. Lady Soames was a child of Winston Churchill the legendary British Prime Minister. The Soms and Mugabe's formed a strong relationship from those early days. When Lord Soms died, the Mugabe's were in attendance at the funeral. In return, Lady Soms was in attendance as representative of the Queen at Sally's funeral in 1992. One account in Heidi Holland's book suggests that Mugabe threw a chair into a glass panel in disgust and anger when he learned after Sally's death that she had left all her wealth to her sister and family in Ghana. Apparently, in order to avoid a paper trail linking funds to him, the Mugabe family funds have been kept abroad in Swiss bank accounts in her name. It might have been Sally strike back following her husband's betrayal towards the end of her life when she knew he had taken on a second wife. Separately, Sally's estate sparked a legal battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe, Hartnick v. Master of the High Court in another, 1993, Volume 1, Zimbabwe Law Report, page 137, Supreme Court. At the time, the law on the administration of deceased estates allowed any person to inspect the accounts of an estate. Michael Hartnick, a journalist, approached the Master of the High Court to inspect the accounts of Sally Mugabe's estate. However, the master of the High Court denied his permission to do so, arguing that he had not proven a financial interest in the estate. Hartnick approached the High Court for relief, but Justice George Smith, Smith ruled that the matter was not urgent. However, on appeal, the Supreme Court overturned Justice Smith's decision holding that the law permitted any person to inspect the account of a deceased estate. This meant that the master of the High Court did not have the power to prohibit an inspection of the Sally Mugabe's estate. While Hartnick was permitted by the Supreme Court to inspect the account, it is not clear at the time of writing what he found. Unfortunately, Hartnick died in 2006, and records of his findings and report on the estate are still the subject of further research. The decision had an unintended effect on the law of deceased estates because it prompted a change 
in the legislation to restrict public access to such estates. The case revealed the extent to which the authorities went to suppress access to and information regarding Salim Mugabe's estate. It suggests there was something that Mugabe and the authorities were trying to keep away from the public. Seeking Sanctuary The years of forced separation from her husband were hard for Sally. Not only did she lose the comfort and society of her husband, but she had to endure the loss of her only son alone and thereafter suffer an illness which would eventually end her life. However, in the midst of all this, she suffered the indignity of being pushed from pillar to post as she literally begged the British authorities to let her stay in Britain. After Normal's death, Sally had moved to Britain in 1967, where she studied a secretarial course. She returned to Ghana in 1968 but went back to Britain, where she, where she was associated with the British Aerial Foundation. Between 1969 and 1970, she worked for the Africa Centre. When she sought permission to stay and work in Britain at the end of her visa, the Home Office denied her application. This was the start of a challenging period during which she was threatened with deportation back to Ghana. The situation was complicated by the fact that she held a Ghanaian passport and therefore was regarded and treated as Ghanaian national. She and the supporters were keen, however, to emphasize that the Ghanaian passport was for convenience, but that she was now a Rhodesian citizen by virtue of a marriage to Mugabe. Her station as Mugabe's wife brought her a number of influential supporters and sympathizers in the civic society sector and some members of the British establishment who pushed her case with authorities. The Home Office insisted on a rigid and strict application of the rules, arguing that there was no reason to give a case any special treatment. The Foreign Office, on the other hand, while acknowledging the legal technicalities, tried to urge a more compassionate approach given the political implications of deporting Mugabe's wife. Although it was not known that Mugabe would become a future leader of Zimbabwe, the Foreign Office had the sense to anticipate that as one of the leading nationalists detained by an illegal regime, Mugabe one, might one day become an important person and it was not in Britain's interest to upset him. Sally, who lived in Ealing, Broadway, West London, pleaded with the British authorities. Confidential documents available at the National Archives reveal the correspondence that went on between the various parties at the highest levels of government in respect of the Sally matter. In one letter to Maurice Foley, who was a sympathetic minister in the Foreign Office, Sally pleaded, open quote, I am surprised at this decision in spite of my plight. I am completely at a loss to know how else I could have written to touch the hearts of the decision makers. May employers have already indicated that she cannot keep me for long and I can understand her fears. But I, I must leave whilst this scrutiny goes on. Close quote. It was a desperate situation. The situation became so distressing for Sally that Mugabe sent a telegram from Salisbury Prison and subsequently a long handwritten letter to the British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, making an eloquent and passionate plea on his wife's behalf. Open quote, 
it is clear to me that the Home Office is hanging on to legal technicalities, completely de deprived of morality, close quote, wrote Mugabe in 1970 in reference to the British immigration authorities, insistence that Salim be returned to Ghana because she had entered Britain on a Ghanaian passport. Open quote, my wife belongs to Rhodesia, where I am, and not to Ghana, where your government wanted to go, close quote, he insisted. Open quote, more than that, sir, I hope that the British government owes definite moral responsibilities towards not only persons in my circumstances, but their wives and dependents as well. My wife, whose health has never been satisfactory since the loss of her son in 1966, is at present suffering a serious emotional upset as a result of the decision of the Home Office. Surely the fact of my detention is enough suffering for her already. May I request, sir, that you personally exercise your mind on the case I have placed before you so that justice is done to my wife and myself, close quote. It was a desperate plea. Mugabe even apologized for sending the letter from Joel as it meant Downing Street had to play a surcharge, had to pay a surcharge to receive it. It was similar to what Zimbabweans of the letter writing generation will know as a open quote, pay forward, close quote. Eventually, after a big media campaign and a petition signed by at least 400 MPs, the British authorities relented and allowed Sally to stay. The irony of Mugabe making such a passionate appeal to the British government on behalf of his wife is not lost on most Zimbabweans today, especially those in the diaspora. In recent years, Mugabe has been scathing about Britain, describing it in unfavorable terms, Yet then, in the 1970s, he was pleading for his wife to be allowed to stay in Britain. Most significantly, there are thousands of Zimbabweans who had had to flee to Britain for political and economic reasons and have, like his first wife, Sally, had to apply for sanctuary. For many, they can relate to Sally's experience. The letter that Mugabe wrote to the British Prime Minister from prison could be written by any spouse or parent of a Zimbabwean who is today struggling to get sanctuary in Britain and facing serious challenges with the immigration bureaucracy. Many of them have encountered exactly the same problems that Sally faced back in the 1970s. Where Sally traveled on a Ghanaian passport, some Zimbabweans have had to travel on Malawian passports. Where Sally was told by the British authorities to go back to Ghana, these Zimbabweans have also been told to go back to Malawi. The parallels are uncanny. It is an intriguing thought to imagine what Sally could have made of the thousands of Zimbabweans experiencing exactly what she went through 40 years ago. Would she have been more sympathetic? Or would she have forgotten like a husband appears to have done, given how he often mocks the Zimbabwean diaspora? Restraint on Mugabe? Critics of Robert Mugabe's second wife, Grace, often compare her unfavorably to Sally, the first wife. Grace is accused of profligacy while Sally is loaded for a so-called modesty. Rather than the Gucci stilettos and Armani outfits that Grace favors, Sally was comfortable in a two-piece Ghanaian dresses and an elaborate headdress, which was a trademark. But these comparisons are hardly fair. Sally's world in the years following independence had less public scrutiny than the world that Grace inhabits. 
the public has far greater, greater access today to what goes on around the First Lady than was the case in the 1980s. Great excesses are more visible compared to what went on inside his world. Another point that is often made when people hunger after the Saliers is that she would have been a far stronger restraining figure than Grace has been. The charge is that Mugabe has remained in office for too long on account of a younger wife who would love him to stay there, to enjoy the benefits of power. The view is that Sally was more restrained upon Mugabe than Grace has ever been. But this argument is not without hope. Firstly, it underestimates the strength of Mugabe's personal resolve to hold power for life and overestimates Grace's power. It assumes that Mugabe is controlled or submits to the control of his spouses. But Mugabe is a stubborn and strong-headed character. Mugabe is not a victim of his younger, younger wife's ambitions. He is a chief architect of his own fate. He is in power at nearly 93 because that is absolutely what he wants. It is mere speculation to think that Sally would have been a more restraining influence upon him than Grace has been. Secondly, and perhaps most significantly, those who believe Sally would have restrained Mugabe in his later years ignore the evidence that he presided over the worst atrocities in post-independence Zimbabwe at a time when he was married to Sally. Kukura wounded the genocidal campaign during which an estimated 20,000 people were killed in cold blood in Matebeleland and the Midlands happened during the country's darkest period between 1982 and 1987. Sally, not Grace, was his wife. If the argument that Sally had, be, had a more restraining influence upon Mugabe, how could such egregious excesses have happened when they were together without her stopping him? How could you credit Sally with having power to restrain Mugabe without at the same, same time making her complicit for not restraining him from engaging in excesses? The more reasonable proportion is that when it comes to political decisions, Mugabe's wives have not had as much influence as people ascribe to them. If Sally failed to restrain Mugabe over Gukura Hunti, there is no reason to believe that she would have done better than Grace in relation to Mramba Tsuina or the 2008 election violence, both of which were smaller in scale. Furthermore, Mugabe's path towards centralization of power and dictatorship began in the 1980s when Sally was his wife. The historic Zanupiev Congress in 1984 gave Mugabe extensive powers to appoint members of the Politburo, the executive arm of the party, taking away the power to elect by members. The infamous Constitutional Amendment No. 7, which created the executive presidency, was passed in 1987. It was on that account that Sally became the second First Lady after Janet Banana, wife to President Kenan Banana, who was a ceremonial president. These acts of centralization of power in Gabba's hands were done during Sally's time. How could this be possible if the argument that she had more restraining influence over Mugabe be valid? Most people were surprised by Grace's late entry into the political arena and even more so by the suggestion that she was aiming to take over from her husband. She has made many statements including grand claims of the power that she holds over the vice president. These extravagant forays have not been popular, but few realize that by the time Sally Mugabe died, she had also ascended to the role of head of the Women's League in Zanopiev. Like Grace, she also sat in the Politburo, Zanu's powerful executive arm. 
But unlike Grace, Sally had always been in the political trenches. She was not a late arrival to the party. In 1978, she had become the Deputy Secretary for Women's Affairs in Zanupia's Women's League with Joyce Njuru as a boss. What is more significant, in my opinion, is to consider the loss of Sally a close companion and confidant from their early years as part of a bigger network of peers who might have challenged and restrained him. This network of peers includes wartime comrades like Josiah Tongukara, Joshua Mkomo, Morris Nyakumbo, Simon Mzenda, Edgar Tekere, Edson Zoko, Herbert Usheukonze, Inos Ngala. These men, along with Sally, were his peers. They did not hold him in awe as does the current generation of puny politicians in ZANU-PF. They subjected him to greater scrutiny and did, did not like it very much. But some died too soon or fell out in Gabi that their influence became marginal. Solomon Juru was the one peer who lasted longer and challenged him when it became clear that Mugabe was determined to stay in power forever. But he too met a mysterious end in August 2011 when a fire gutted his farmhouse. These peers could have constituted a key review panel and their collective absence, not just that of his first wife, has been a yawning gap that has allowed Mugabe to assume a sense of omnipotence among more junior politicians. Has she lived longer? It is, of course, impossible to speak with any measure of certainty as to whether the course of Zimbabwean history might have changed had the hand of death not been so quick to take it away. Perhaps because African culture generally frowns upon speaking ill of the dead, most youths tend to imagine a brighter and more hopeful consequence as she lived longer. Also, comparisons that condemn Gabe's current wife are often used to justify the view that things could have been better has Sally been around. However, as Yuval Noah Harari reminds us in Sapiens, a brief history of humankind, open quote, history is not a means for making accurate predictions, close quote. It cannot be predicted because history is chaotic, open quote. So many forces at work and their interactions are so complex that extremely small variations in the strength of forces and the way they interact produce huge differences in outcomes, close quote, right Harari. And he is right. It is a fallacious exercise to try to predict what course history might have taken had Sally lived longer. It assumes that all other things would have remained constant, which is not correct. She seems to have a firm relationship with some members of the white farming community who supported the children's charities, who she had prevailed on Gabe would take to take a different approach to the land takeovers post-2000. She seemed to rely on British health system a lot on account of a medical condition. Would she have influenced her husband's reaction to the British government in the dispute that emerged post-1997? We'll never have definite answers to such questions precisely because history is unpredictable. However, from what we know, it is not impossible to imagine what might have happened to a marriage and consequently how that might have affected Mugabe. Chang revealed in a book that Sally was ready to walk away and return to Ghana after discovering that Mugabe had taken on a second wife. There are indications that she was feeling ostracized and targeted by some of Mugabe's inner circle and she thought her foreignness worked against her. Mugabe already had a child with his mistress. Would Sally have succumbed and accepted the appearance of a second wife? 
Mugabe would have had to keep Grace's secret, which he did until 1996, four years after Sally's death, when they got officially married. But would he have managed to keep Grace and the children a secret if Sally had lived longer? Would Grace have accepted, accepted to live in the shadows forever? How would Sally have taken the humiliation of the disclosure of her husband's infidelity? Many of the younger generation of Zimbabweans who are oblivious of this history only have an image of Mugen Swangirai, Mugabe's major rival, as a reckless philanderer with Mugabe cast as a morally upright man. The facts do not correspond with this false categorization. Both Mugabe and his wife have even mocked Tongirai for this behavior. They do so without any hint of irony that the, the origins of their own relationship are steeped in the same illicit tradition. They are hardly the couple that should claim the moral high ground when it comes to such matters, certainly not in Sally's eyes. Mugabe's grief. Mugabe may have cheated on Sally, but her death appears to have hit him extremely hard. The death can't have been a surprise because Sally had been very ill for a long time. Mugabe had made reference to it in his letter to the British when he pleaded for her to be allowed to remain in Britain while he was in jail as a political prisoner. It was a health condition that prevented her from having more children after the death of Namu. Confidential um, records now at the National Archives show that on 5 January 1982, the then British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher wrote a letter to Mugabe welcoming him, welcoming him to London, where he had come to see Sally, who had been taken ill and was getting treatment. Open quote. This is to welcome you to London and to say how very sorry I was to hear of your wife's illness. Close quote. Wrote Thatcher. Open quote. I do hope that you will find her in good heart and on the way to an early recovery, close quote. That you even offered help, open quote. I hope that you will not hesitate to let me know if there's anything we can do to make your wife stay here more comfortable or if there's anything we can do for you during your brief visit, close quote. That was a period when relations between Gabe and the British authorities were still healthy and convivial. But implicit in this episode is the fact that not much has changed between then and now. The only difference is that nowadays, Mugabe takes his family to the Far East where they get medical treatment. If relations with Britain had remained cordial, he will be going there for treatment. Chang also reveals that Sally had been getting dialysis twice a week, so the death of Sally was not something that came without warning. By taking on a second wife during the terminal stages of her illness, Mugabe was already preparing for life after his demise. Yet still, when it did happen, it did hit him hard. In an article entitled Day of the Crocodile, acclaimed author Peter Godwin wrote in Vanity Fair magazine on 31 July 2008, open quote, The mortician who embalmed Sally's body told me that Mugabe visited the funeral parlor every day for nine days until his state funeral, to sob over the open casket, a touching sense slightly curdled by the fact that Mugabe had already served two children by one of his junior secretaries, Grace Marufu, 40 years his junior, whom he finally married in a lavish ceremony in 1996, close quote. It cast an image of a man who grieved deeply at the loss of his wife, 
which suggests the years of marriage had not eroded his love despite his illicit affair. Other accounts show how he often attends um, at the Hero's Acre with flowers and that the commemorative session held annually show that the loss of Sally still affects him deeply. Sally's prostitutes. Like all people, Sally meant different things to different people. It would be a revisionist to try to paint her as a saintly figure. She had her flaws and that people should have rubbed the wrong way. But if one's life is an account of the good and the bad, it must reflect the assets and liabilities in the final balance sheet. Most people hold her in high regard, which suggests the asset end of a balance sheet outweighs the liability side. No doubt, one of her contemporaries who held her in high regard, Fei Chang, has some kind words to say on her behalf. Open quote, she had a simple ambition, close quote, says Chang, open quote. She wanted every woman in Zimbabwe to be educated and to have a job. She realized that economic independence was of critical importance to women. Without it, women would not be free. She spent a lot of time trying to strengthen the women's movement. In this area, she managed to win the unfailing support of poor women, particularly market women and peasant women. However, she was not able to win the support of many pro professional women. Close quote. Of her charitable work, apart from children, two in particular stand out. She dedicated herself to assisting lepers and sex workers. According to Chang, open quote, there were some hundreds of former lepers who lacked housing, clothes, and food. Sally decided that it was her duty to provide them with the house, blankets, clothes, and food. After her death, she gave her clothes to the lepers. And it is possible today to see an old leper woman wearing the expensive coat that Sally used to wear. Close quote. In 1981, she became matron of Mutemwa Leprosy Center in Toko. Her role helped in the right against social stigmatization of lepers. She took them to her heart and made them feel loved, where society frowned upon them and treated, treated them like lesser humans. Sally's work in that field was remarkable, showing a heart to look out for the marginalized society's outcasts. Another was when she began to work with sex workers who had converged in, in Marondera, a smaller town near Harare. She mobilized resources to build houses and find better work for the sex workers. It became a major campaign. At one point, Mugabe was asked about, about his wife's work with the sex workers. There were, open quote, Sally's prostitutes, close quote, equipped in his response, advising the Inquisitor to direct his questions to Sally, who had more information about them. Conclusion We will never know how things might have turned out had Sally lived longer. It is hard, if not impossible, to predict history because the variables are always dynamic. The idea that Mugabe might have turned out differently merely reflects the wishes of a people rather than the course the history would have taken. The notion that she was a far stronger restraining influence on Mugabe is not supported by history. If one thing sticks out more than others, it is that between her and Grace, she has fared worse as a victim of their husband's personal pursuits. As great and amiable personality as she was, she was very sadly unable to defend herself against her husband in the Department of Amorous Activities.
What could she have done to restrain Gabe against others when she could not restrain him to protect herself? What is certain though is that most Zimbabweans remember Sally with much fondness. This is not to say she was loved and admired by everyone, no. It is hard to find a human being who is universally loved without exception. Even great heroes like Nelson Mandela have their, have their critics. As this account has demonstrated, Sally went through complex experiences. She married a powerful man and most people might have imagined that she lived a glamorous and blissful life. But as this account shows, she plowed a course that any other ordinary woman knows too well. She lost a young baby and had to bury her alone. She suffered the indignity of begging for sanctuary in a foreign land. She incurred an ailment that required her to depend on machines for nearly two decades of her life. She suffered the humiliation of her husband cavorting with the mistress, which, to add salt to an open wound, was blamed on her inability to give him a child and his mother a grandchild. This is the story of a great figure in our history, but it is also the story of every ordinary woman. It tells us that beyond the facade of, of, of official dome, at the end of the day, we are all ordinary. Behind the clock of office, when the lights go out, we are all in the same bracket. The challenges of life are equal opportunity phenomena. Stanley might have been called the first lady of Zimbabwe, but at the end of the day, she was as vulnerable to patriarchy as any other woman. Open quote. She brought out the soft, loving side of Uncle Bob, close quote, says Patricia Bekele in Heidi Holland's book. She recounts how they will sit um, together around five each evening, watching the sun go down as he drank tea and she ate a custard, sometimes sitting on the arm of his sofa, sometimes holding and exchanging kisses like a pair of naughty teenagers. She describes how he would wait by a dressing room, calling her to come out so he could see her. She was the one who spoke the most. She was more expressive. Wamgabe kept things inside, a tactic that he has used so well in his politics. One says Bekele, he advised Sally not to reveal too much, but to keep it inside when engaging people. She tried, but not always, with her husband's success. She was, open quote, one of few who could challenge Mgabe's ideas without offending him, close quote, she says, and he valued her thoughts so much that he would even discuss his cabinet reshuffle. Open quote. The cabinet reshuffle was a serious event at home and he listened to everything she had to say. Close quote says Bekele. If true, then maybe Mgabe has always given an ear to his wives and he did not begin with Grace, who's often maligned for being too intrusive. The difference, what one might say, is that Sally never publicly bragged about her power the way her successor does. But this is not a comparison of two women one of whom clearly suffers the burden of the second wife or husband's nature label. In death, Sally has managed to pull a great deal of people to a cause, but even in life she had the knack of bringing people together. Most Zimbabweans of an older generation will remember the mega concert which she hosted in 1988. In her book, Here I Am, highly acclaimed South African musician PJ Powers remembers it so well. She described how Sally Mugabe open quote, apologized profusely, close quote, when she and a band were detained at Harare Airport 
after traveling for the fundraising concert in support of Sadi's Child Survival and Development Foundation. The mega concert brought a number of luminaries including Harry Belafonte, Mire Makeba, Yuma Sekela, Salif Keta, Maxi Priest, and Mangu, Manu Dibango. Zimbabwe has not had many of those, and that surely must count as one of the great musical moments since independence. But now it's all memories. She was not perfect, no. But I suppose it's fair to say she was Ghana's great gift to us. One of the most con conspicuous features one cannot miss when you take a tour of the National Heroes Acre is an empty grave next to Sally's tomb. Perhaps the lovebirds who met and found love on the Atlantic coastline in Sekondi Chakorande will once again be united when he finally crosses to the other side, as we are all destined to do at some point. Perhaps Sally will be waiting for him, just like she did for 10 years while he was detained by Ian Smith. And then, maybe then, you will be hers again, but this time forever, and without any rude and cruel interruption, not by colonial jealous or younger women. May Sally's soul rest in peace. Wamakaisa.